Support for this podcast comes from Canva. When you look good, you feel good. But when your presentations look great, it can feel like you're walking on a cloud. You can design stunning work presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos with Canva. Start with a designer-made template. Use it as a springboard for your design. Add images, graphics, charts, and more from Canva's massive media library. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Welcome to the Prop G Pod's Office Hours. This is the part of the show where we answer questions about business, big tech, entrepreneurship, and whatever else is on your mind. If you'd like to submit a question, please email a voice recording to officehours at propgmedia.com. Again, that's officehours at propgmedia.com. First question. Hi, Scott. My name is Kenneth Juarez. I'm a grocery clerk from Southern California. I work for Ralph's, which is a, a division of Kroger. Kroger is about to undergo a merger with Albertsons, which would further their monopoly on the grocery industry. As a union employee the last 27 years, I've felt us fall off that lower rung of the working middle class ladder. And the things to blame for that are plentiful from a changing work market to an economic model that seems to benefit the top at each debt cycle to a degree that has made it untenable for employees at a company as great as Kroger to make a living wage. Our union is also to blame. Our union is supposed to represent the grocery worker. But there's a problem with that model too when the people entrusted with such tasks make more than the people that they're representing. As a member of my union, I'd love to aid them in um, any way possible, making sure the merger doesn't go through. I'd love your thoughts and feedback. Thanks. Kenneth from Southern California. Um, I appreciate the question. I was actually, we have a bit of a shared backstory here. In high school and in my first year in college, I was a box boy at San Vicente Foods on, wait for it, San Vicente. And a big moment for me was when I was admitted into the union and I went from $4.25 an hour to $9.50. And then about two months later, I don't even know why, I didn't think to ask why, or three months later, they said, oh, you're not in the union, you're not eligible for the union. And I went back to four bucks an hour and I quit. Uh, So a few things here. Um, In October, Kroger said it was buying its rival Albertsons in a $25 billion deal, one of the biggest deals in U.S. grocery industry history. According to Reuters, 5,000 grocery stores would be under one umbrella if the deal goes through. Last week, a group of 25 consumers filed an antitrust suit to block the Kroger-Albertsons merger. They're arguing that the merger will result in higher prices, lost jobs, and reduced competition, which is essentially what antitrust is all about. Currently, the chief executives of Kroger and Albertson defend the deal, saying it will provide more efficient distribution chain and that the combined company would still be significantly smaller than Walmart. They're now working with the U.S. Federal Trade Commission on its regulatory review. So there's a lot here to unpack. The first is antitrust, and that is simply put, Ken, when an industry becomes too concentrated, they can abuse monopoly power, usually on consumers, 
but also if they're the only employer in town, they can keep wages pretty low. And Walmart's been accused of that, uh, and a lot of employers have been accused of that. If they're the only kind of job in town, without workers' right to organize and form a union, the workers have very little um, currency at the negotiating table. Now, having said that, this brings up unions. I think the intention, the motivations, and the net aim of unions is absolutely the right thing. America is about work. America is about dignity of work. And the marketplace on its own, the supply and demand dynamics of market, the marketplace will leave a lot of workers making less than a living wage. That's the bottom line. The economy does not function perfectly. And everyone who just defers to the marketplace doesn't realize there are externalities. And one of those externalities is on a variety of conditions. I would argue that unions have proven less and less effective over the last 50 years. I think of the 47 Western countries that have unions, 46 have seen their membership decline. And in the U.S., membership in unions has been cut in half over the last 40 years. Now, why is that? I think they've been the perfect enemy or the perfect foe for capital. And that is, I sit on a lot of boards of directors of public companies, and we start talking about unions. And I find that, generally speaking, they're super easy to defeat a lot of times their management is disorganized, not that competent, and quite frankly, sometimes just corrupt. So I'm a huge fan of unions, but they need to be consolidated to one union, and that is the federal government. We should have one union in the United States, and it should be the United States federal government that imposes minimum wage standards of $15, then $18, then $21, and then wait for it, $25. Oh, my God, what will happen to Walmart and McDonald's? Their stocks will go down substantially. What will happen to all of these small businesses that are totally dependent on low-wage labor? A lot of them will go out of business. And here's the thing, Ken. It'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. Because the majority of those jobs will hold. And what will happen is there will be a retransfer back from the wealth of shareholders who are dependent upon companies that exploit low-wage supply and demand economics. And there's just no getting around it. We need a massive shift in power back to the worker. So I believe that we need a minimum wage. I think we need to restore more dignity to work. Now, as it relates to antitrust in the grocery market, typically speaking, the measure of an industry being too concentrated is that prices have been increased on consumers. And I think what you have here, I don't see it in the grocery market. I think the margins in grocery are actually really thin. I think the average margin on a grocery store is like 4%. I would argue that Amazon coming in, I mean, there's a certain monopoly effect going on here. And it's that the monopoly that is Amazon that comes in and starts Amazon Grocery can do predatory pricing. And that is until they get market share, they can price below the cost of what it is to deliver those groceries to your doorstep. And as a result, the traditional grocers are just getting hammered. So I think consolidation is one way to compete. So I'm not sure it makes sense to block this merger. I don't know if this has what I'd call the typical dynamics of a merger you would want to block because I think Kroger and Albertson's bottom line is just need to compete. But anyways, there needs to be one union that dramatically increases minimum wage such that everyone who decides to work in America makes a living wage. I am not sure, however, having said that, this merger qualifies as uh, something we should get in the way of. Again, a very thoughtful question, and I wish the best to you and your family. Question number two. Hello, Professor. This is Luis from Virginia. I'm a Hispanic male in my mid-30s who grew up a poor Hispanic male back in New Jersey. After high school, I joined the Navy, where I had opportunities to travel the world and get an education basically for free. 
I've worked in cybersecurity for around 13 years and recently joined a tech company. I make a good living and I'm kind of hitting my stride career-wise. Recently, some former colleagues reached out asking if I'd be interested in investing in some startups they're involved with. Even though my gut answer is yes, I have no clue how to determine whether what they're doing is a sound place to invest or whether I'd be wasting parts of my young family's small nest egg. What kinds of questions would you ask a group of hotshot cybersecurity engineers looking to build a company? Thanks for taking my question and for everything you do. Uh, Louise from Virginia, a uh, really thoughtful question. First off, I, I, I say this, it's a standard, it's a standard, I don't know, response, but thank you for your service. I'm generally appreciative of our young men and women in uniform. I believe that our investment and the sacrifice that young men and women make in terms of time away from family is directly correlated to our liberties. So first off, congratulations. It sounds like you've gotten a a great career, served your country, saved a little money. So in response to your question around how you evaluate these investments, my short answer is don't. Seed stage investing, first off, is a really shitty asset class. Seed stage investing should be for wealthy people who get what I call different ROI. What's that ROI? You get psychic ROI. The best angel investors are what I call FIPS, formerly important people. They made a lot of money, they were ballers, and now they want to give back to the community. They take a million bucks and they make 10 or 20 investments of 100 or 50 grand and um, you know, mentor young people and help get these things off the ground. It's a terrible asset class. It's a terrible, there is so much infant mortality. Even VCs don't like to invest in seed stage. They've been forced to because it's so competitive. They have to go earlier and earlier. But the vast majority of seed stage investments do not work out, even if the company works out. A VC comes in, they raise a shit ton of money, and they wash out the earlier investors. Or at some point, the company hits a, hits a speed bump. You don't have the money to defend your position. They do a raise at a much lower valuation. It's just a shitty asset class. So even you have good buddies. I understand your inclination. You want to help them out. You want to get in on the ground floor or something cool. What I would suggest is if you really want to do this, ring fence it to 10% of your, your nest egg. What do you do? What do you do? Brother, you are doing exactly what you should be doing. You have a good career. Sounds like you have a really good head on your shoulders. Sounds like you are engaged in what is the key to building wealth. And that's not making a shit ton of money. It's spending less than you make, such that you have enough money to start investing early. That's the shooting match right there. And it sounds like you get that. So what do you do? You put your money in low-cost ETFs and you diversify. And you let time take over because you are still a young man and you have a lot of time. I was making several hundred thousand dollars a year by the time I was 30. I didn't save a goddamn penny. I mean, I was making so much money on a relative basis, but because I was in startups and I thought I was exceptional, I'm like, well, I'm wait till Red Envelope goes public. I'll wait till I sell profit. I'm a baller between the 2000 dot-com implosion, the 2008 Great Financial Recession, a divorce. I woke up basically at 40 and was pretty much broke about the time I started having kids, which was not great for my own mental health. But guess what? You are on a better trajectory than me. So you do not take that nest egg and put it in high-risk investments that could go to zero. By the way, anything that could go to zero is not investing. It's consumption. And I understand that. It's fun to trade stocks. It's fun to occasionally buy Bitcoin. It's fun probably to spend a little bit of money or invest 1000 2000 bucks in your friend's startup, but no more than that, boss. There is no way to evaluate investments 
in any sort of tried and true way in something like cybersecurity. It's really all about the people. If you think the people are good, throw them a few dollars. But my brother, you are on the right trajectory. Stay focused, stay the course. We have one quick break before our final question. Stay with us. When your work presentations and docs look good, you look good. You can design stunning work presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos with Canva. You can start with a designer-made template, then use that as a springboard for your design. Add images, graphics, charts, and more from Canva's massive media library. Or get a huge head start with AI-powered Canva presentations and docs. Just describe what you want with a few words, and Canva will generate amazing slides and text in seconds. It's AI that anybody can use, no matter what department you work in or whatever work task you need to get done. Look, we all need to visually communicate at work. Canva makes it easy to get your point across while looking professional. And at the end of it all, that stunning Canva presentation is going to make you look good. Wow any audience and finish your work faster. Start designing today at canva.com. Design for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back. Question number three. Hey, Prof G. I am a 45-year-old consultant uh, with a technical services firm out of Toronto. Good living, very secure retirement. Uh, Things are going really well. However, I'm a former small business owner and that itch to get back into entrepreneurship has never really gone away. So I've been hearing all recently about the silver tsunami, so-called, which is in case you haven't heard of it or your listeners haven't heard of it, like the, the baby boomers who have all had businesses and are, and are now reaching that age of retirement and are looking to exit through acquisition. And so there's a massive opportunity, allegedly, uh, for people to to take over these small businesses that are already spitting off cash and and uh, maybe quite secure in their operations day to day. So funding an acquisition of this nature typically involves the SBA and loans backed by the SBA require a, a personal guarantee. In other words, if I was going to do this, I would have to essentially put up my house as collateral. Um, for this kind of loan, which presents, you know, no small amount of risk. So I'm just wondering what you think, or if you've heard of the silver tsunami, what you think of entrepreneurship through acquisition, uh, how you think through the level of risk involved with these kinds of things. And uh, if you have any advice for how to get my wife on board with these cockamamie plans, that would be great. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for the question. This is getting a lot of attention, and uh, it's something I need to understand better. Essentially, as you highlighted, the silver tsunami of retiring workers is bringing a wave of small businesses for, uh, up for sale, which is great for younger business owners looking to expand. According to the Census Bureau data from 2018, 51% of business owners in the U.S. were 55 or older. According to the Small Business Administration, SBA, small businesses employ 47% of the workforce and that's about 62 million people. So a small business, you could argue, is sort of the backbone of the American economy. The millionaire next door owns 
you know, two or three dry cleaners. They don't work at Google or, you know, maybe if you live in San Jose or Woodside. But in most neighborhoods, the people who are really killing it have some sort of small business. There's a surge in business acquisition financing, and the reason is the older generation is passing the baton to the next generation. The Census Bureau revealed that there were 72 million baby boomers in 2019. Uh, from 2012 through 2019, data from Pew Research shows that they've retired from the workforce at an average rate of $2 million per year. Uh, so you can see the supply is there. A lot of these boomers have businesses. They want to either pass it on to their kids or they want to sell it. As for small business lending in the U.S., according to the latest data from the Federal Reserve, the average small business loan amount is $633,000. If you're thinking about a business, I would argue maybe find a business you like and try and open one yourself. There is nothing like the attention and the kind of parenting and obsessive compulsive behavior when it's your business. In terms of acquiring a business, a lot of networking, a lot of due diligence. As it relates to borrowing money from the SBA, I'm trying to think of a delicate way to say this. I have never nor will I ever sign a personal guarantee, which uh, means that SBA loans are something I would never do. I'm not saying it's not a good idea. I'm not saying it's not something you should investigate because they're lower interest rates, backed by the government. I just don't sign personal guarantees. When Red Envelope, uh, my company, uh, went through reorganization, which is a fancy way of saying bankruptcy in 2008, I mean, it went public on the NASDAQ in 2002. And so I'm like, oh, I'm a baller. I have, you know, millions of dollars in stock. Well, guess what? I kept doubling down and uh, failed slowly. And then the thing, 2008 credit crisis, and boom, we were out of business. If I'd signed a personal guarantee, I would have had to come home and tell my wife that we were losing our house. I just don't think you want to put yourself in that kind of position, set yourself up for that kind of stress. 80% of divorce filings are filed by women. And the three primary causes of those filings are the dude has some sort of a mental health crisis, loses his business, or loses his job. And I don't think you want to subject yourself to that kind of risk. So I'm all for starting a business. Uh, I'm all for acquiring a small business if you think it makes a lot of sense. I'm not for at your age going all in because every loan makes sense at the beginning, but there are certain things that are beyond your control. You could acquire a business, have it go really well, uh, work really hard, and then the economy goes into the tank or there's some sort of exogenous shock or God forbid you have a health crisis and boom, that personal guarantee kicks in and you lose, lose a lot or lose everything. So what is my suggestion? Be measured, maybe start a business in a field that you're interested in. And then I think of all these small businesses coming up for sales a great way to expand a business as opposed to get into the business. The conversation you have to have with your wife is at what point would she feel economically secure taking that sort of risk? Does she make an income? Do you have dual sources of income? And also don't romanticize entrepreneurship. It sounds like you know what it's like, but we have a tendency to romanticize it. And look at the opportunity cost. How well are you doing now? How much money are you able to save? Do you like your job? You just don't love it? Do you have sponsorship? Are you able to put away money? And maybe just have a very open conversation around at what point would we have the economic security to try and take this risk? And also, something you have to model out is that in 24 or 36 months after starting the business, you lose everything you've put into it and it hasn't worked out. Uh, one in five businesses are gone within the first 12 months. If you're going to buy a business, even if you, uh, in order to avoid a personal loan, maybe raise money from some friends, try and get bank financing. You know what's a great way to buy a small business? Seller financing. And you say, you know what? You're retiring. I'm going to give you 
8 or 10% on the money you're going to loan me against this thing, and I'm going to pay it off over five years. And that way, if it doesn't work, if it doesn't work, you haven't signed a personal guarantee, you give the business back or you figure it out because he has a vested interest or she has a vested interest in ensuring that the business thrives. But don't romanticize small business. Have an open and honest conversation with your wife about the risks you can take. Network like crazy. And if you find a business owner and a business you're interested in, talk to them about seller financing. Thanks for the question. Best of luck to you. This episode was produced by Caroline Chagrin. Our associate producer is Jennifer Sanchez. Drew Burroughs is our technical director. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to the Prof G Pod from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We will catch you on Saturday with No Mercy, No Malice, as read by George Hahn, and on Monday with our weekly market show. Thanks to Canva for their support. You're busy, there's no denying that, and we all wish for just a little more time in the day. So why not let Canva help you get your work done faster and more efficiently? You can get started with their AI-powered presentations. Just describe what you want with a few words and Canva will generate amazing slides in seconds. It's AI that anybody can use, no matter what department you work in or whatever task you need to get done. Finish your deck faster. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work.